I got words. I got words. Hello, world. Welcome to another bonus episode of Pablo Speaks, the podcast where words influence thoughts, influence actions. I am your host, James Paul Sr., also known as Pablo. And in today's podcast, I will narrate part two of my three-part essay titled New Lots to White Plains, Urban Tales of New York City from the Diary of James Paul Sr. That's me. Let's go. I got words. Welcome to the city that never sleeps. The city of megalomaniacs, IPOs, and Ponzi schemes. A resilient metropolis of glamour and excess. Guarded by a 300-foot goddess and beacon of freedom and hope. An urban petri dish where diverse cultures collide, collude, and collaborate daily to fulfill grandiose dreams of immigrants and citizens alike. The grand pillars of capitalism were first built here by the Dutch and British on the backs of African slaves, 15,000 to be exact, exploited, broken, buried at 290 Broadway in Lower Manhattan. The Ted Weiss Federal Building stands there now, a majestic edifice among many, with towers scraping the sky, high over an island grid, swindled from natives for 60 guilders, 50 shovels, and a box of sparkling beads. Indeed, this is the city where deals are made daily by Ivy League emissaries in Gucci suits and horn-rimmed glasses. Buyers beware. I got words. Many of these well-groomed brokers, shakers, and deal-makers board the number four express at Borough Hall, the last stop in Brooklyn. America's class and color divide scream from the opulence of luxuriously renovated brownstones and high-rise condominiums, transforming the landscape of downtown Brooklyn. Just follow the money. If you did, I'd wager my green card. You would find a wealth gap as wide as the Atlantic Ocean between the average household income in Brooklyn Heights and that of Brownsville, a mere six miles away. Okay, okay. I'll save you a Google search and keep my green card. It's 150000 for Brooklyn Heights and 37,000 for Brownsville, a gap of $113,000. To my unsophisticated immigrants' eyes, these are the faces of success rich, confident, peremptory, and predominantly white. I got word compressed like human sardines in a tube of metal and glass. We traverse the Geralaman Street Tunnel under the East River, Manhattan-bound. The immutable sound of the morning's first subway preacher breaks the air. Several decibels above casual conversations and my fast song on Napster 
public enemies fight the power. I often wonder why or what moves an adult to invade the space of perfect strangers with unsolicited religious rants and sermons. Is it insanity? Is it delusion? Or is it a divine calling beyond the comprehension of sinners on their way to work on a very cold morning in January? Repent and turn away from your sins for the kingdom of heaven is near. Today's word is being delivered in a thick Nigerian accent by a tall, bespectacled black woman in her 60s. She's wearing a red trapper hat with ear flaps and gray four fur lining. Miraculously, she's able to carve out preaching room in the aisle of the crowded train. Hallelujah! Prayers of the Lord. She raises a small Bible above her head. Her eyes are transfixed on a millennial hipster sitting nearby, minding his business. Blue eyes glued to the screen of his Android tablet. He's rocking a skin-tight turquoise Ted Baker suit with matching pink shirt, tie, pocket square, and socks. His bleached blonde hair has rainbow streaks of blue and red and lime green. He could be Norwegian or Swedish, I surmise. But he is unmistakably gay and the object of the subway preacher's wrath. Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of those who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire. He glances at her momentarily, shakes his head, then resumes reading his tablet. A large Hawaiian-looking man steps in front of the subway preacher, effectively blocking her view of the young hipster. Thankfully, she exits at Bowling Green. Her red hat moves with deliberate speed through the crowd towards the next car or train. The gay hipster gets off at Wall Street in the heart of New York's financial district, still shaking his head. It could have been an ugly scene, like it was back in 69 on Christopher Street, a few stops north, and site of the infamous Stonewall Inn riots. I got word. The turbulence began back then after police raided Stonewall Inn, a popular illegal gay bar in Greenwich Village, an establishment owned and operated by the Genovese crime family. The mobsters had no liquor license, but the fat envelope stuffed with $100 bills, a weekly payoff to rogue cops, kept them in business. The protection racket included early alerts of police raids. It was not uncommon for the bar to be shut down for several hours, then reopen later after the heat subsided. But the raid in June of 69 sparked six days of violent clashes with NYPD. The bar was shut down permanently and the riots became the catalyst for the gay rights movement in America. And the gay rights parade 
held annually in Greenwich Village during the last week of June. I got word. It's 6.45 a.m. when the train finally pulls into Grand Central Station, buried 140 feet below 42nd Street in the heart of Manhattan. As the doors open, we are greeted with a loud staccato of beaten drums, courtesy of a black and white duet on the platform. The two men are a staple at the station. With sticks and wildly flailing arms, they rattle an intense strident medley of improvised noise on eight white plastic buckets, positioned upside down around them. The thick, unruly afro, dark skin, and multicolored dashiki of the ebony drummer strike a compelling contrast next to the long, blonde braids, white turban, and robe of his ivory sidekick. It's truly a sight to behold, especially for tourists and first-time commuters. The all-important money bowl sits empty in front of them. It's early. They'll be there all week. I got word. I feel the early signs of a headache brewing. I'm going to need a few excedrins later. My immediate challenge, however, is to safely traverse the moving mass of humanity rushing through turnstiles, upstairs and escalators, and in every direction across the main floor at street level. Owned by a private company, Midtown TDR Ventures, the monumental Grand Central Station is a product of political will, visionary engineering, and audacious architecture. It covers a mind-blowing 48 acres and includes 44 platforms, 30 tracks on the upper level, 26 on the lower section, dissected by an organized web of subway tunnels through which millions travel daily in, out, and around Manhattan. It took 10 long years to build this national historic landmark, officially opened on February 3, 1913. The cost? An obscene $2 billion in today's dollars. 10 to 20 million tourists from all over the world visit each year. They stare in awe, pointing at 2,500 stars painted on its marbled concave ceiling, an astronomical replica of the blue heavens from Aquarius to Cancer, bisected by the equator. They gather in groups daily along the miles of gently sloping ramps and on the floor of the majestic main terminal, snapping photographs with cameras and cell phones. I got words. It's now 6.50 a.m. I skip the escalator and climb the stairs to the upper level. The stations and Manhattan's pedestrian-friendly design offers ample opportunities to burn a few extra calories, to make room for a decadent rugala, or a few chocolate babkas from one of the many pastry delicatessens scattered around the terminal. My mouth-watering thoughts are interrupted by a hand on my shoulder. I stop and turn around. I am confronted by a brown-skinned, slightly unkempt, middle-aged woman. Sir, sir, 
I'm sorry to interrupt you, sir, she says. Her eyes are filled with sadness. Her face a swollen mask of despair. Sir, I need your help, sir. Do I have the sucker sign stamped on my forehead? Why do they always pick me? There are a thousand wealthy professionals on these stairs and escalators. And she picks me, a poor, underemployed, commission-only salesman. Sir, I'm heading downtown to the homeless shelter for breakfast. Can you please scan me in, sir? I turn around and accompany her back down to the turnstile. I use my metro card to scan her into the platform. Thank you, sir. God bless you. She bows gratefully, turns around, and hurries towards the number four downtown local. Oprah would have been proud of me. I had once again paid it forward, and it feels good. Uh, this time around, I take the escalator up to the main floor. The Metro North train schedule flashes in red from a large black billboard on the wall overhead. North White Plains departing 7.15 a.m. on track 19. I had more than enough time to grab a few cinnamon raisin bagels and that large cup of hot coffee with cream and two sugars from my favorite deli next to the Metro North ramp on the upper level. I didn't need that Excedrin after all. It's never crowded on the Metro North to White Plains in the morning. And there are no subway preachers either. I got words. Thanks for listening. This concludes part two of my three-part series titled New Lots to White Plains, Urban Tales of New York City from the Diary of James Paul Sr. Please remember to answer the poll and Q&A question at the end of this and every podcast. And please join me next Tuesday for part three of New Lots to White Plains. Also, before then, you can catch the regularly scheduled episode of Pablo Speaks this Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Happy New Year to you and your families. And I will see you on Sunday. Ayo. I got words. 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 I got words, I got words in my head. Every word I've read. I got words in the oven, baking.